One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Hello, and welcome to a packed edition of FT Science. This week, we discuss the ethics of online healthcare and the Brown Review on university funding. We welcome Hugh Whittle, head of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, as our studio guest. Hello, Hugh. Good morning. Also on the show, we'll hear from our regular co-presenter, Diana Garnham. Hello, Diana. Good morning. And we have Clive Cookson on Blue Brain, a project to simulate the workings of the mind. I think the brain perhaps could be seen as the ultimate information and in computing technology. And our regular science magazine report is on the debate around direct-to-consumer genetic testing. So in those circumstances where you have very high-risk tests that may lead to important health decisions, you probably want to regulate them more stringently than you would for information about your earwax. I'm Andrew Jack, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, the Nuffield Council on Bioethics issued a report calling for tougher controls on healthcare in the internet age. With us is Hugh Whittle, previously with the Department of Health, the European Commission and the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, who's chief executive. Hugh, what exactly is the council? Well, the council is an independent body, actually, that, uh, that brings together uh, expertise to examine ethical issues arising through developments in uh, science and medicine. Um, so we, we bring together working parties, we run consultations, and we examine questions that are topical, that are novel, that are complex, and where we feel that we can contribute something towards policy. And have you managed to change government policy, for example, on some of your previous reports? Well, indeed. I mean, uh, our uh, famous recent example was uh, our recommendations on uh, DNA database, the police DNA database, where we uh, recommended that uh, the police should no longer hold uh, profiles of people who had not been convicted of crimes. And in fact, this was uh, our report was quoted by the European Court when it forced the government to change its position. That's great. And tell us more about this week's report. What's the subject? Well, this is, is the subject of this. Uh, we refer to uh, personalised healthcare, which is which is an uh, an odd cluster of uh, developments uh, where technologies are being applied in the context of healthcare, uh, largely digital technologies, services that are being offered online, uh, whereby people can access health information, health advice, uh, health services, drug purchases, uh, DNA profiling. Um, in a, in a way that they can uh, take control, if you like, of their own health care, of getting these services without going through a medical practitioner. And what we're concerned with is how this might change our, our relationship with the health system, but also how it affects us, how we might benefit from these things, and whether there are any risks. So was there a sense from the, the council discussions that actually maybe the risks are potentially greater than the benefits of that greater access? Well, I, I think, well, let's just first of all say that, um, by and large, we're not looking to, to, to ban or to over-regulate things. There are certainly some potential benefits here, and, and to the extent that there, there are harms, they're not yet emerging. Um, so there are, there are a few very clear harms. Nevertheless, um, uh, what we're suggesting is that, for example, with uh, looking on at websites for health information, uh, purchasing drugs online, certainly 
at uh, genetic profiling, whereby people get very complex information about future risk of disease, such as heart disease or kidney disease. This is very difficult information to manage. So if people are going to get the benefits of this, they need to be guided towards good services. We need quality controls over, over websites about health information providers and some regulation of those providers who are offering, for example, body scanning services that do carry some risk. Hugh, what attitudes are you finding that the medical profession has? Are they cross, upset at being excluded? Is the old patriarchal um, view that doctor knows best being undermined? Well, I I wouldn't say that. I mean, we're hearing some rumbling, some um, anecdotal uh, evidence, shall we say, that doctors are themselves concerned about what are happening. Their patients are coming to them saying, well, look, I've got this information. Um, I've been looking at this stuff and I'm not quite sure what to do with it. So I think that we see the medical profession themselves are are a little concerned. And and in fact, one of the things that we we suggest is that there should be some more advice and training for GPs in how to advise their patients on where to go for good information and what to do with these kind of results once they get them so that they don't go through further unnecessary investigations or tests. Looking at it from the patient point of view, do you think that somewhere between the regulation and a free-for-all is there's room for something like a sort of trip advisor that actually helps the patient... Um, or any member of the public assess you know, what's valuable on the basis of other people's input? I, I, actually, I, I rather like that idea of, of TripAdvisor. I mean, in, in itself, it ne- we need to be confident that it's providing a, a good service. And, and uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we can't regulate the internet. We can't stop these services happening. But what we can try and do is find those mechanisms, kite-marking, accreditation systems, a TripAdvisor type of uh, reliable service that can point us in the right direction and, and give us some assurance or remove the false uh, anxieties um, that, that, that we sometimes suffer. So it seems to me that there's a need for more government agency willingness to at least engage in the debate where perhaps up till now it's somewhat sort of let the internet do its own thing and as a result you go and get some of the more irresponsible services rising to the top of the pile. I think that's right or, or, or not always let the, the internet do its own thing or a sense of helplessness that we can't do anything about it. Well, well, well there are things that we can do. Um, uh, they're not about clamping down or regulating necessarily, but helping to guide people. Um, and I think that's the thing that, that we're looking for here, so that people don't um, have false reassurances, they don't have unnecessary anxieties, um, they don't find themselves in, inadvertently misinformed as to their health. And if they are going to take responsibility, uh, that they know what the implications of that are going to be. Um, if, we, if I take a DNA profile or a body scan, are insurers going to ask for this information later on? Um, what is the source, the research base behind all of those things? So these things need to be uh, solidified as well. Um, and this is going to take some industry standards. It's going to take a degree of light regulation. And we're going to have to watch where it's going to take us in the future uh, if this is going to be more personalised, predictive. We'll, we'll come back to these issues from a US angle later in the programme. But now let's move to the independent review of higher education funding and student finance commissioned by the British government from Lord Brown and published on Tuesday. It calls for funding for 10% more places in universities, coupled with a removal of the current cap on tuition fees and a higher threshold of earnings above which past students will be required to start reimbursing their loans. Diana Garnham, you've been looking at this. What do you feel? I think it's a very, I mean, it's a really good 
uh, contribution to the debate on on university finance. Um, and I think it is quite imaginative, and it's tackled a lot of the key issues of fair and treating all fairness and treating all students the same. I was interested at the makeup of the panel because as soon as we started to look at it in the office and started to consider how parents might respond and how students might respond to this, I think that although it says that it's offering choice and quality control to students, I think an enormous amount of diversity could emerge. And my biggest worry here would be that those students who can afford to pay upfront for the fees, because this recommends that no fees will be paid up front by anybody. Those who can afford to borrow at a cheaper rate or get it from their parents will actually have a wider range of choices and perhaps choose courses that are cheaper and cheaper on the interest elsewhere and overseas. And I think that is a worry. What does it say about science courses, science engineering, maths medical courses? As far as I can see, it doesn't say anything specific and there doesn't seem to be any disincentive for universities to charge higher fees for science courses. So that could easily be something that would emerge and we would worry about. But there is an overall cap and there will be some measurement of how um, and quality control of how universities match against each other and which courses are more expensive. So I don't suppose all universities will behave exactly the same way. And of course, this is just a recommendation. This whole report has to be gone through and either adopted or rejected or amended by the government. And then politics is going to come in. The Lib Dems might well oppose many parts of it. What, what do you think is the political future for this? I think it's enriched the debate, but I think it's unlikely. My feeling is it's unlikely to emerge in legislation in exactly the format it's in at the moment. And one of the testing challenges for those is actually the merging of the funding councils and a higher education council, which will require primary legislation. And he's suggesting in the report that that will regulate the quality of degrees and there's a huge body of work to be done before you could actually write legislation to do that. Of course, the other thing that we're waiting for is news on the government's approach to funding overall for higher education, I guess, in the next Yes, and at the, at last week at the Conservative Party conference, there was an interesting discussion about shifting the... Um, uh, the responsibility for the loans and collecting the money to the universities as it is in the States to a large extent and that of course means that the universities would have to offer value for money because otherwise they'd have no students and I think that's quite an interesting dimension which will come in in the discussions in Parliament. There's also another issue which I think underlines a little bit of the, the Brown Review and that's a talk about this idea of funding and support for applied strategically important areas. I don't know whether Hugh you feel for example teaching discussion around ethics as part of science, medical and other courses is an important aspect and maybe one that could suffer if we are moving to an age of austerity. But it, it is going to be, certainly we would regard it as essential that um, um, uh, the, the medical um, curriculum includes ethics and increasingly this is happening across areas of science as well. It's very important to integrate it as a, as a core part of it. But one, one does worry that what, is, what, what might happen is that, uh, is that courses will retreat to only what is they, they see as essential and those kind of what, what may be regarded as peripheral parts will, will be lost. There is a very important part of the report that recommends better careers advice for students and also better tailoring of the courses to what employers need. And I think that may help guard against the very research or um, knowledge-based learning um, because we'll have to look and see what employers want and if employers want rounded science graduates who can consider ethics and public attitudes as well yes. as their science then there will be demand for think, those graduates. 
That, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting because I was just looking at, uh, I mean, what's in front of me is, is a note saying that uh, uh, what, what Brown had used, it, it, we're guided by three principles, participation, quality and sustainability. And one of the things that we do is identify the, the ethical principles that underpin and inform our work. And I, and I was just looking at these and I, I wonder whether, you know, there are other principles that are missing here, which are, are about um, uh, solidarity, uh, intergenerational justice. You know, there are some interesting things that we're starting to work with that I wonder if they're missing from this construction of curriculum or from uh, this kind of Uh, this kind of report. Yes, there is a risk of being too vocational. Anyway, let's move now to Switzerland, where scientists have been perfecting Blue Brain, a project designed to simulate on computers the workings of the mind. Clive Cookson talked to Henry Markram, the project director. Henry Markram, you are heading up the very ambitious Blue Brain project at EPFL in Switzerland. Tell us what you're trying to do. What we're trying to do in the Blue Brain Project is to bring together all the data and the knowledge that exists on the, bra- in, on the brain uh, from many years and to put it together in a bottom-up way, driven by biology, to create an accurate computer model of the brain. How far have you got so far and what is your future program? So um, we started in about 2005. Um, we built the first uh, column of about 10,000 neurons uh, in 2008. It's not, um, incl- it doesn't include all the molecules. So since 2008, what we have been doing is to build all the IT infrastructure needed to be able to draw in and account for every molecule that is in neurons. We're also expanding to uh, build larger and larger pieces of the brain. You're using the rat brain as a model at the moment. When might you be ready to move on to the human brain? So we use the rat brain because it provides us an excellent uh, cellular framework. And from the cellular framework, we can learn general principles of how neurons are constructed. With these general principles, we can begin to look at other species and to see how these small tweaks that allow you to convert a rat neuron into a mouse neuron, a mouse neuron into a cat neuron, into a uh, monkey neuron. And finally, we'll be able to work out how to build synthetically the neurons in the human brain. We're beginning this process. Um, I think that that is not the biggest challenge. The more uh, difficult challenge is going to be to define the molecular properties that are in the brain because, as you know, we start with um, with animals because we need to do invasive experimentation and uh, derive the principles of which genes are switched on, which proteins are produced, how are they cycled and how are they used. And we want to translate these principles progressively across species and work our way up to the human. You are much nearer the beginning than the end of your project, but have you managed to learn anything already? Well, the beauty of this strategy is that, um, uh, of this biological-driven strategy, is that um, you actually cannot build it by brute force. You can't build it without systematically deriving principles and rules uh, that allow you to build it. So, for example, when we wanted to build a neuron automatically, we had to work out 
how are the ion channels, the proteins distributed that create the different behaviors and what would be the general principles for it so that we could use it in a push-button algorithm when we wanted to connect the neurons. So we had to systematically work out by building it and looking at how it fits and doesn't fit and derive the principles of connectivity. We have done that now and today it's possible to actually build the circuit and have these synapses, the connections between neurons, positioned with exquisite precision that match the biology. So that's connectivity principles. But we'll go further and further in terms of functional principles. You've talked about some of the things you'll learn about our brains and how they develop. What will you learn about the way computers should develop? Well... I think the brain is, is uh, perhaps could be seen as the ultimate information and in computing technology. Um, it has 100 billion neurons, a 1,000 trillion synapses, a million kilometers of fibers, and it runs on 30 watts. So it clearly has a solution for IT in terms of a computing system that is very low power. Uh, then there are other properties of the brain that could be used. For example, resilience. We know that we lose thousands of neurons every day, but the computer doesn't stop. Our brain doesn't stop. Whereas if you had to lose one processor in a supercomputer, it would stop. Then there are also secrets of memory. The brain has a, a unique strategy for storing an enormous amount of information, and it seems like a limitless amount of information for us. We think that this is very much a a strategy of where the, we use past memories as building blocks for new memories. Thank you very much. Good luck. Interesting, Clive. I was talking to a company this week that was arguing there are limitations to efforts to simulate human physiology as a way to uh, test drugs because computer models effectively are working backwards with what we do know rather than understanding the broader biological systems that are the reality of the human body. Do you think there are similar limitations to this for the mind? I think there are. I mean, this is reverse engineering on the grandest possible scale. And I think to set out on it at all, people like Henry Markram have to be very optimistic and they have to be really quite visionary. I think by 2025, for example, I mean, all these projects, people expect to produce results sooner than they will. I think by 2025, it will be producing results. But although it may tell us things about the brain, I think it's actually going to be more useful to the computer industry. I mean, we talked in that interview about learning in both directions, but I think, I don't think it's going to crack the problems of consciousness anyway. Hugh, what do you think about this from the point of view of the bioethics of simulating the brain? And of course, we should remind our listeners that this is all, all in silicon. There are other people trying to graft neurons onto computers and have a hybrid sort of bionic system. This is different. This is all in silicon. Well, it, it's interesting. We, we, we spoke a little uh, a moment ago about how it was necessary to integrate the, the not just ethics but other social uh, thinking into uh, science as it develops. And, and, and there are things that come out of here if, as, we, as we start to, to understand and to map and to, to uh, realise how the brain works, how 
um, consciousness uh, even works. And it, it does raise questions about uh, responsibility, about determinism, uh, what implications this could have potentially for uh, in, in the education system or in, in the criminal justice system even. And so I, I, I know these things are, in a sense, a long way away, um, but claims are made and uh, it, you know, it makes its way into the popular imagination. I think we need to accompany it with some, some quite uh, forward-looking thinking uh, on the other side too. Now let's hear our regular contribution from Science Magazine, which explores direct-to-consumer testing. Over to Robert Frederick in Washington. Thanks, Andrew. For only a few hundred dollars U.S., you can send in your DNA and learn about your own genetic susceptibility to, say, diabetes, Alzheimer's, or cancer. Continued innovation in genomic sequencing technology will probably drive down that cost even further. But the ultimate cost of having such genetic information, warns many governmental regulatory agencies, isn't measured in money, but in health particularly if you act on the results of such tests without consulting a doctor. One of the key issues here is that any genetic testing really needs to be done in the context of a holistic picture of the patient. Amy McGuire is a medical ethicist and researches health policy at Baylor College of Medicine. She is lead author of a policy forum in This Week's Science about how to regulate such tests. So genetics is just one piece of the puzzle. And in interpreting a genetic test result, you also need to have other pieces of the puzzle to fit it into. So family history is incredibly important. Any existing symptoms that the patient may have would be particularly important in understanding how significant the risk is. In addition, McGuire says there's little likelihood that such direct-to-consumer genomic tests are even clinically valid because they're not regulated. Most genetic screening tests are not currently regulated in the United States, and part of it is because the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has exercised their enforcement discretion by not regulating what are called lab-developed tests, and these are tests that are developed in-house and are sold by the individual who develop the test. Nevertheless, consumers do want the information. Jim Evans is a practicing medical geneticist at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and is not affiliated with McGuire's paper. When somebody says to me, why can't I have the information that is contained in my own genome on my own terms, that's a legitimate question. So the public doesn't necessarily want us to regulate this out of existence, but they deserve proper regulation that protects their interests. But the difficulty is in figuring out what proper regulation is. Looking to other countries, the United Kingdom has responded similarly to the United States, producing policy reports and educating the public. Germany simply banned public access to these private tests. Policy form author Amy McGuire argues the proper regulation takes what is called a risk-stratified approach. No regulation for information that isn't health-related such as information about your ancestry or, say, type of earwax. Then the regulation kicks in based on the level of risk to your health that the genetic information conveys. So in those circumstances where you have very high-risk tests that may lead to important health decisions, you probably want to regulate them more stringently than you would for information about your earwax type. And that suggests a need for some kind of threshold, McGuire adds, for which tests are regulated and which tests are not. Because regulating on a case-by-case basis, or rather gene-variant by gene-variant basis, would be too burdensome for any regulatory agency. But regulate, says Jim Evans of the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, 
and start by regulating the claims made by genome testing companies. My personal feeling is that the alleged benefits of most of this testing have been wildly exaggerated by companies that are offering it. And I think that that is not necessarily due to overt attempts at deception, but could simply be just extraordinary naivete on the part of scientists who don't understand the messiness of clinical medicine and medical practice. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Robert. So, Hugh, risk stratified regulation, does that tie in with your recommendations this week? Um, it does, actually. It's, it's um, very interesting to listen to that. I mean, we've, we've made almost identical observations about uh, the clinical utility of some of these tests, about the, uh, uh, the, the, the difficulty of interpreting the information, about whether it, uh, it, it actually can tell you anything more useful than simply uh, eat better, drink, drink less, and, uh, and exercise more. Um, so we, we see the same things in the question about regulation equally. Um, the, 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 there's some uncertainty about who's got leverage in this area, whether it's the healthcare regulatory authorities, whether the Advertising Standards uh, um, Authority. And, I mean, what we're saying is that in the context of these tests, we can't ban them. There's no, there's no evidence of harm at the moment uh, sufficient to, to, to warrant a ban. But a little more pressure from those regulators to ensure that good information is provided to people who might purchase the test about their limitations, their implications, um, that's, that is certainly needed. But it's, but it's going to be difficult and, and it's going to take a while to work this through. It sounds on this issue, at least, there's quite a lot of transatlantic agreement. But some areas, stem cells that we've discussed before, for example, there are quite big tensions and divisions, aren't there, between countries, as, as the science report was pointing out. Germany has a different approach to the UK. I wonder, how can you create a sort of ethical consensus among council members, actually, on some of these big issues? We take a long time over these reports. We bring a lot of people together from a lot of different disciplines and, and we construct a, a framework, an ethical framework, if you like, where we identify which principles are at play, wh whether it's about freedom of people to make choices, about the responsibility of state to protect people from harm, about the need to protect people who may be vulnerable. And if we can agree on some of those values that should underpin our thinking, then we can look at you know, how to implement this into policy. So uh, there are ways to approach this, and we do find that we can build um, sufficient consensus around it. Do you have any particular recommendations on the type of regulation or any regulation that you'd like to see? I mean, you mentioned advertising standards, but it seems to me that there is a big overlap here on some of the health therapies where... They are not yet regulated, but they're still overclaiming. Well, that's right, and there's, I think there's um, some uncertainty at the moment as to the um, extent to which uh, the health regulatory authorities can have, you know, purchase in this area in terms of regulating. I think we need some more clarity about that. Um, I don't think. Uh, at the moment, there's sufficient evidence of harm to warrant uh, you know, heavy-handed legislation and, and regulation. Uh, but nevertheless, what we would like to see is, is, is some means by which those people providing these services are asked to demonstrate um, a better research underpinning of their results and uh, better evidence of the, uh, uh, the claims that they're making. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, many thanks to our contributors in the UK and abroad, above all to our studio guests, Diana, Clive and Hugh. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by Emily Cadman. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.